This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. Author Richard Bartholomew of the latest book, The Deep State in the Heart of Texas, The Texas Connection to the Kennedy Assassination, visits us to tease us about some new revelations about what happened in Dallas 55 years ago and the infamous Zapruder film. Be sure to visit metaphysicalpodcast.com and click on 96 for more information about Richard Bartholomew, the work that he's doing, and other media that he referenced during our conversation. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. An author that I think that you're going to hear a lot more of in the realm of the JFK assassination conspiracy. Um, Richard Bartholomew is our guest. He is the author of the great book, uh, the, De- uh, the Deep State in the Heart of Texas, The Texas Connection to the Kennedy Assassination uh, by Richard Bartholomew. He is a artist that everybody knows of. Everybody has seen his work, even if you don't know his name. How does everybody know you? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. Nice to make your acquaintance, and um, thanks for the compliments. Um, I have been a a political cartoonist um, since 1996, and and, uh, won a couple of national awards, which nobody would know about. Became syndicated in 2006. I did my requisite 10 years of submissions to the syndicates and then finally got in. Uh, I'm, I'm syndicated out of uh, Artisans Incorporated in Canada, Edmonton, uh, Alberta. I had to outsource my own job because I'm too liberal for Texas and too liberal for the U.S. as it turned out. So um, you can go to artisans.com and uh, navigate to my page. Um, you'll find links to it. The best way to get links to all of my stuff that's, you know, the highlights of my stuff online, it's scattered around, and that was one reason we decided to put some of it in a book. Um, it's hard to find because it's scattered, but we've got links to most of it on the um, on our Think Tank's website page. It's about me. Um, the Center for Deep Political Research, or cdpresearch.com and navigate to our board members and their works and their media efforts. I think that this is a great place to uh, ask you about the Center for Deep Political Research. Uh, how, how did that come about and, and what is that organization all about? Well, we call it a, uh, a nonpartisan think tank for truth. Uh, and it was my idea. Uh, it grew out of my frustrations with the conferences, which for me started with the mega conferences. In a very personal way, uh, I sort of planted the seed that turned into the mega conferences beginning in 1991 with uh, South by Southwest here in Austin, Texas, uh, taking my seed and growing it into a big conference in Dallas. And then it evolved into uh, two other conferences that lasted in another you know, 20, 25 years. And um, they've pretty much um, petered out now. Well, one of them ended when 
the COPA conference, the Coalition on Political Assassinations, uh, which is the one I was affiliated with. I was a co-founder of COPA with John Judge. John Judge died a couple of years ago, and they decided to disband COPA and uh, end those conferences. But the vacuum was filled by what I call the post-COPA conferences, the post-mega conferences. And those are ongoing, and I will be appearing at one of those in Dallas, November uh, 16th through 19th. uh, But anyway, the frustrations over those conferences and the fact that really nothing was solving anything uh, or resolving anything, let me catch myself. Uh, There's no solving to be done here. Everything is solved. And And any standard of criminology and any standard of a criminal investigation this is a solved murder. And, but, it's, uh, the authorities who should be, uh, taking this further into, um, the judicial system have never done it. It was forced into the judicial system by Jim Garrison, of course, mm-hmm. and he had some success with it. Um, but, uh, it didn't, you know, it, that even was, kind of put away by the authorities. So we're still in denial officially. It's an official denial. And uh, during the last, well, it's really starting in about 2011, I guess, um, I started trying to innovate and looking at the whole history of all this which I was involved in since 1990. That's when I uh, really jumped in and started contacting other researchers and started uh, my in-depth daily research, which basically I've never ended since 1990. My reading started in 1988. Yeah. Uh, so there's a long history there of daily research and scholarly investigation. And But by 2011, uh, I thought, I looked back and I, I kind of stepped back and looked at the big picture and saw that well, none of this is making a single bit of difference. Not no, a single book no. that has come out um, since 1964. None of the investigations, none of the conferences. And I, you know, I'd say every single conference that I attended or even heard about that I didn't attend, there's headline worthy stuff. There's breaking news stuff, doomsday headline worthy stuff that came out of every single one of those conferences. But you step outside of that bubble and nothing. You walk up to the next person on the street once you once you adjourn that conference and you walk outside and it's all over with. It has had no media coverage and you walk up to the a stranger on the street and you say, you know, um, what do you think about the Warren Commission? The what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, and these days you'll even mention Lee Harvey Oswald, and somebody will say, "Who?" You know, these uh, younger younger people will actually do that. There's a few who will return a recognition and say, "Oh yeah, we talked about them in in, high, in history class." Things like that. Right. So you know, it shows you the 
absolute uselessness of everything, all of the methods that have been done so far. I've been, I've been retracing all that history, and, and I have a lot of ideas about it. And so I said, and, and I also investigated, all right, the liars are in charge. They're, they are, they control the chessboard. I use a chess analogy in my yes, yes. this. And, and I thought, okay, well, where are we in this chess game? They control the board. They obviously have vulnerabilities. We can still win this. I'm saying we are past the middle game, and we're ready for the end game, but we've never pushed it to the end game. And so I started thinking about an end game, and I looked at where, where the lies were coming from, where the talking points are coming from, about pretty much all the lies, and it goes way beyond this subject. And I discovered the think tanks, and... I then discovered by researching them that it was a deliberate effort that began in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, based on a memo that Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell wrote in 1971. And um, he, he proposed uh, that we form think tanks. Think tanks have been around since basically the end of World War II in a big way. Mm-hmm. But in 71, Lewis Powell said, we can push the conservative agenda. We can, we can have a permanent conservative majority. We can turn this into a conservative country. And we do it through the think tanks. And the think tanks will come up with all the, all the uh, rhetoric and all the talking points. And then we'll... And they also were at that time taking over the media. Um, and, uh, of course, the think tanks were pushing that as well, ways of doing that. And so all the creative thinking that that has led to today and is still uh, being done is coming from the think tank. Now, I ask myself, all right, where, where, how are the think tanks funded? Well, where's the where's the money behind the lives? And then you look at how the how think tanks are funded, and you say, okay, there's there's the money. You follow the money. It's in the think tanks. The oligarchs put all their money in these think tanks to, pr- to pursue their agenda. So I said, okay. I looked around. I saw some some good little think tanks around doing some good things, but none of them had any money. They were struggling. Uh, and I said, okay, we, what we need here is an anti-deep state think tank. The deep state is pretty much um, formulated and planned in the think tanks, the deep state oligarchs own the think tanks, and they create them, and they fund them, they staff them, and they, you know, create most of the stuff the newsreaders read on today's media, and they divine that as well. So I said, well, you know, we need a modern-day version of the White Rose. I don't know if you are familiar with the White Rose resistance movement in uh, Germany. I do remember, yes, now that you mentioned Germany. Yes, I do remember now. Right. There's a great film uh, about Sophie Scholl, who was one of the founders and members of the White Rose resistance movement. They only lasted for a year and a half, two years, um, because they um, their basic 
plan was to, uh, they were basically college students. And several of them had been Hitler youth and they had been raised and all that. But they were young, they were college students. And they they said, somebody somebody has to oppose this. Uh, they had heard heard about the Holocaust. They'd heard about when called that thing. They'd heard about the internment camps and the, the you know, people being taken away and disappearing. Yeah. And they they started writing about all this. And they they copied they, they wrote it up in the pamphlets and they ran it off the way they would copy things back then, I guess mimeograph. Mm-hmm. And 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 they would mail, they got mailing lists, just random mailing lists all over Germany. They would mail them out. And then they got the idea they just we could we could take these, we could get stacks of these we can go and dis- just anonymously distribute them, you know, secretly, just leave them lying around, and, uh, you know, and they would do that, and they were caught doing that at one point. They hung around a little too long. The movie, the movie about Sophie Shaw, this, um, Google, you can see the whole, the whole thing is on YouTube. You can just uh, YouTube it and um, watch the whole movie. It tells the whole story brilliantly. So high production value movie and it's a docudrama and it's uh, it's the story and it's just uh, you know we'll leave you breathless and we so we modeled we, we decided that we're going to use them as a role model because and you'll find a lot of if you Google Sophie Show or you'll search engine you'll uh, find a lot of great quotes you know You'll find some of the entire pamphlets that you can read. Um, and she she said in her trial, her kangaroo court trial, where they found her guilty of treason and executed her almost immediately after the verdict, they, um, she said somebody had to make a start. Uh, they, she said uh, a lot of people are, you know, know the same stuff we know and think the same stuff that we think, but they don't, they're not able to express themselves in the manner that we did. And she said that in her court statement. Uh, and we, we have picked up on that and we use that quote. And so we're making a restart. Uh, we are, we, somebody has to do this. Somebody has to be the voice, major voice of opposition here. Yeah. yeah. So, we decided to form a think tank, fight fire with fire, but be the exact opposite of the think tanks that grew out of the Lewis Powell memo. I think that one of the things that I'd like to believe is that what we're doing right now is part of the resistance and shining a light on the deep state, which brings me to a question that I have for you that deals with the title of your book. What, who and what was the deep state in Texas in the 1960s, and how did they participate in the, the assassination of John Kennedy? Well, now, I started, I think there, there are two long essays in the book that comprise easily you know, most, most of the book. I'd say it's a, it's a 425-page book, and I'd say 300 pages of it are those two long essays. Um, I have them in reverse chronological order because almost no one has read 
the ballistics essay that I co-authored with a gentleman named Walter F. Graff. So we put that up front. And it really is the easier one to get into because it, it presents the conspiracy in a very direct and easy way to understand right in the first page or two. And then explores the way the mechanics of the conspiracy work regarding evidence, regarding the Dallas police, regarding the FBI, regarding the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee investigation. And it shows how the evidence was handled. And I name names, of course, because mm-hmm. I, you know, I quote them. I quote them from the official investigations. I, I quote uh, the testimony of the Dallas police officers, the Dallas sheriff's deputies, and the Dallas sheriff himself, the, uh, the uh, district attorney, Henry Wade. I quote him. I quote everybody. And so there's their names. And, the, you know, <laughs> everyone who participated in this, um, in this conspiracy to uh, misdirect, I don't call it a cover-up anymore. That's, that's the propaganda. They want you to, they, they play with your mind with these words. Oh, it needs to be solved. It's unsolved. It was a cover-up. No, it wasn't. And that comes from the great attorney, Vincent Solandria's book, False Mystery, which you can find online now. And he was, he was on the ground. He was one of the initial first-generation original investigators. He went to Dallas within weeks of the assassination and started interviewing witnesses. And so he's been ahead of us all along. And he, he came along in the 70s with this false mystery concept that just, you know, it was a paradigm shift for those of us who came across it. And uh, it was a dull moment when we said, well, of course, it was intended. It was intended to be known that it was a conspiracy. And I, you know, I quote a, um, a Russian painter uh, that I came across recently. It's a brilliant quote. And she said, she said, uh, the rules are simple. Um, they lie. We know they're lying. They know we know they're lying. But they keep lying, and we keep pretending to believe them. Yeah, so, yeah, that's, uh, scary that's basically the false mystery concept. Uh, yeah. You know, we, they, they, they did not, there's nothing hidden here. Um, except minute details. And they want you to just get so involved in the minute details that you there's no end to it. No criminal investigation in the history of criminal investigations ever did that. It's just if you've studied the basics of criminal investigation, you, you know that at some point you get the you get the evidence, you uh, you you get as much of the evidence as you can, hopefully all of it, and it tells a story, and you go with that story. And you give it to uh, the prosecutors, and they take it to court. Well, we're stuck in we're stuck in investigation mode. Uh, Garrison got it into court, and guess what? He convinced the judge and the jury that it was a conspiracy. That was not the hard part. Yeah, uh, the hard part the hard part was for him, and the part that he was uh, interrupted in doing by the CIA was in convicting with evidence that he had that was not allowed in 
into the trial, he tried extraditing people from all over the country. They couldn't get them because people like Ronald Reagan, governor of California, would not would not allow the extradition. And other governors elsewhere would not allow the extraditions. And, you know, the, the judge, who was convinced of conspiracy at the end, he still wouldn't allow certain evidence that was solid uh, against Clay Shaw, the uh, defendant in that case. Well, you know, today we know, we have the facts, we have the documents that he couldn't get, and we know that he could have gotten a conviction had he been able to use that evidence and those witnesses. But, um, you know, uh, he did he did a criminal investigation, and he got it to trial, and he convinced him of conspiracy, but he was foiled in his attempts to convict uh, Clay Shaw um, as a conspirator. Um, so, so but, you know, so, yeah. it's good enough that we got the jury convinced we got the judge convinced of conspiracy. Um, you you may know about the, the verdict that came down in the Martin Luther King assassination, December 9, 1999, um, where um, they got they got an actual verdict of conspiracy in that case. So those we have one one jury convinced, and then we have an actual verdict. Uh, we can easily get another verdict in the JFK case. Um, and we may soon have a verdict in the Robert Kennedy assassination. Uh, that's going to blow up. I'm pretty optimistic that once Lisa Pease's book, uh, A Lie Too Big to Fail, make a note of that yes. for your audience. Lisa Pease's book uh, is going to rattle some cages. It's going to rock the boat. It's the definitive study of the Robert Kennedy assassination, and it's based on her scouring the files um, that were released. It's an easier it's an easier crime to solve than JFK. because um, it, it too was was it was never any there was never anything to solve. It was obvious from the beginning. She has now compiled that evidence. And it's and it's the evidence that the same attorney who got the conviction in the Martin Luther King case who got the jury which was a civil trial, so it wasn't a criminal case. There was no criminal, death, uh, criminal conviction. But in this case, all we're going to do, uh, there, there may be criminal indictments um, because people have certainly committed crimes, um, at least obstruction of justice, which goes on today in both cases. But uh, they're going to try to um, get Sir Anne Sirhan a new trial and um, get him out of prison because he's he served all this time um, undeservedly for a crime. And, he for a crime he obviously could not have committed if he's on the other side of the room facing um, Robert Kennedy, and Robert Kennedy was apparently shot from behind. So right, and I would tell your audience that anybody who's not familiar with the basic evidence in in any of these cases. Once you know the most simple, basic facts about these assassinations, I mean, you're you're done. Uh, it's obvious. Yeah. With the Kennedy assassination, that's why we started with the ballistics essay uh, there. I don't even go into the single bullet theory. I just tell you straight out, uh, this is what the single bullet theory is. Just, just defining it 
is ridiculous enough to show right. you that you should stay far away from it. And then I tell you, there's six, there are six single bullet theories. So it's not a theory, it's a, the single bullet theories. I only gave six of them. There are more than six. Right. But uh, that goes into some other propaganda rhetoric that I, that I kind of counter with that argument. We can get into, but but what, basically, yeah. um, uh, to get back to your question, um, that's um, that's our that's our our purpose here is to get from get away from investigating and get into some real politic ways of what I say. Um, the way I put it is, we need to stop the lies. Uh, you know. They're lying. We know they're lying. They know we know they're lying, but they keep lying. So now, if we can stop it right there, if we can make it impossible for them to lie, any further, then we made some progress. Yeah. That'll be the it'll be the very first progress. And and the conspiracy, I would say that conspiracy, the greatest success of the conspirators has been their propaganda. That's been the greatest success. And it almost surely survives on its propaganda. And, um, and that goes into the whole, <laughs> whole realm of the uh, deep state uh, yeah. shenanigans. Now, from your book, I'm sorry, from your book, I can tell you immediately, I can tell the listeners immediately that the information that you lay down from the ballistics that you speak of, it could not have been Lee Harvey who shot the president. Right. Utterly impossible. Uh, because Lee Harvey Oswald said he never fired a, sh- he never, he said, I didn't shoot anybody. I'm just a patsy. Right. And the, the evidence, and he told his brother, he said, don't believe the so-called evidence um, against me. And, you know, he knew what he was doing. He was, he, he knew he, if he could, if he could get into the judicial system, he knew that it would. He, there was no threat against him. Um, he tried some other tactics yeah. and ended up getting shot himself. That, that was the first thing that was obvious to those of us who experienced it. And I would, uh, I'm probably getting ahead of you here, but you know, that's if he, one of the obvious questions: is how did you get started in this? I always say that I was there. I was in Dallas in the second grade classroom when it happened. And it was so, it was personal to me. And it happened to the first president that I was aware of as a kid. Yeah, okay. And like, yeah. And so that's, that's, I have that answer, you know. It, it's like it happened to me. That's how I got started. I think the most important question that people are going to want to know is the deep state's motive for killing the president. Why did the deep state want to kill Jack Kennedy? Well, that's a great question. And I get into that in my, um, you know, my my ballistics essay is basically, the first half of it is the evidence and proving that the gun was planted. Uh, and then the second part, I, I go into an editorial mode, where I talk about the meaning of all this. And in there, there's this, like, 
couple of pages worth of discussion about motive. Now, in a conspiracy, in a criminal, in a line, conspiracies are tried every day in, in the U.S. courts. They happen every day, and they, you know, some of them get caught, and they're put on trial, and conspiracy theories, real ones, are developed based on actual evidence. That's what you yeah. do with evidence. You compile it, it tells a story, and that story is the theory. And if you're investigating a conspiracy and you have evidence of a conspiracy, the story that it tells is called a conspiracy theory. Right. Now, that's been propagandized and it's been weaponized, and there's a whole book about that that we can talk about later. But uh, you can learn about how that's been weaponized. The, 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 words, the words themselves have been weaponized. But there, there is such a thing as a real definition of a real conspiracy theory. Right. And, 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 and so uh, that's what you do. And you, um, you use the evidence, you tell that story. And now, one thing you do not do in, in a conspiracy investigation is concentrate on motive. Now, if you have an individual who committed a murder, you have three things to prove. Means, motive, uh, and opportunity. Means, motive, and opportunity. In a conspiracy, you take out motive. Because by definition, conspiracy involves multiple motives. And um, so it's irrelevant. You, you do not have to prove motive in a conspiracy. So that's part of the propaganda as well. Anyone who tries to get you to talk about the motive of the conspirators, remember that. There are multiple conspirators, and they may have each had a different motive. So you don't even deal with it. You deal with the facts. Do the facts tell the story of a conspiracy? Yes, they do. Can we grab one of the conspirators? Because you only have to grab one. If you're lucky, you can get him to expose others. But like Garrison did, you only have to grab one. You know, he had several. And some of them got got assassinated themselves before you could bring them to trial, before you could even indict them. Um, but, um, you know, there are, and we can talk about multiple, we can talk about those multiple motives. And if you really want to get to the crux of the issue of what John Kennedy, who he was and what he was doing and why he died, there's a, if you read only one book on this case, and I appreciate that you read mine, but read uh, James W. Douglas with two S's, Douglas with two S's. James W. Douglas, JFK and the Unspeakable. Well, yes, yes. Uh, why he died and why it matters. And he just, in a short narrative, in a rhetoric, in a short narrative way, this tells you the story of what he was doing. And he throws in some evidence and some documents. He throws in lots of documents if you want to get into the documents. But you just read his narrative about it and, and know that it's based on these documents that you can look up in the end. And he just tells you, well, this is what he was doing. This is who hated him for what he was doing and despised him and wanted him dead for what he was doing. And, uh, and then... If you go to a second book after that, uh, it's a recent book, uh, I, I can give you an easier way of getting, if you're a complete novice on this subject, 
and you think, and you've got old thinking uh, exposed to the propaganda, and you've bought into all the lies, but you want to get out of them. I can give you a simple way of doing it. But if if you want to like jump into the meat of it really quickly, JFK and the Unspeakable, and then uh, The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot. Uh, that's more recent than um, Unspeakable, but it's excellent. And it really goes into a single individual, uh, former CIA director Alan Dulles. Right. And it tells the whole story of Dulles. And when you, I dare anyone to come away from that book not being startled with the realization that he was one of the conspirators. He was one of the planners. Um, he was in all the right places at the right time. He had all the right knowledge. And in my book, uh, in the editorial side of that ballistics, I had to get into Dulles. And I had to get into it. Yeah, you did. You did. In the other, in the other long essay, which is about a getaway car, the famous Rambler getaway car that was witnessed by several witnesses, but ignored by the Warren Commission and by the Dallas yeah. police. Um, I get into Dallas big time in that, too, because some revelations came to my attention when I was writing all that. And I talk about how close Dallas was <laughs> to the people on the ground yeah. around Oswald in Dallas. And, but then I followed that up when I wrote the ballistics article, and I followed it up with, all right, who is this guy, Dallas? And then, of course, that all, that was, you know, 20 years ago, 20 and 25 years ago that I put all that stuff up on the Internet. And that evolved into David Talbot's great book. It's about nothing but Dulles. And it's, it's a huge book. It's like 500 yeah. pages. Because you're in, and, I'm sorry, your entire thesis especially in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, which is a which is a beautiful and lengthy introduction, you lay out the case saying, it's not the CIA who did it, it is Alan Dulles and a few other select individuals. You make that pretty clear, I think, in my book. Um, yeah, uh, that is the foreword by right. the great researcher Edgar Cato. Okay. Uh, the legendary guy who's still with us, knock on wood, he'll be at the conference in Dallas, presenting more astounding revelations from his yeah. from his book, which is now, I saw him in Washington, D.C. last March at a conference and, and learned that his book is now up to 1,500 pages. He's been working on it his whole life. And uh, I said, I told him, look, now you're in Vincent Bugliosi territory, <laughs> Vincent Bugliosi, yes. yeah. the, the great lawyer, we know lawyer in the Manson case and other things. He wrote a massive 1,500-page book called uh, Reclaiming History. One of the worst books written on the topic. One of the, yeah. It's basically a, an apologia of the Warren Commission. Right. He's an apologist it, it, for the it, Warren Commission. It attempts the impossible, and it fails miserably. Yeah. But... But he, he he managed to make a lot of money off of it uh, in his last days. Yeah, I'm flabbergasted um, no, by that. Nobody reads it, though. It's just put out there so that the propagandists can point to it and say, you know, that's what they did with the war Commission when it came out. They said, oh, look how extensive this is. There's 26 volumes. And, uh, you know, you can't argue with this. 
They they argued quantity over quality, and that and they were trying to redo that with the Google. Yeah, people. yeah. So, the thing, well, the thing is, is that somebody is gonna, you know, make doorstops somehow, some way. And Vincent did a great job contributing to the doorstop manufacturing community. Because um, yeah. you can't you can't deny the fact that it's not a good um, a doorstop. Now I forgot the point. How was going to make it out the LC? Yeah. Um, but um, uh, anyway, if you want if you want to read the counter to that book, read uh, James B. Eugenio's book. Uh, reclaiming Parkland. Yes. Because Billy Elsie's book evolved into the movie Parkland, which was executive produced by Tom Hanks. Yeah. And uh, Tom Hanks, she went to the evil side, went to the deep state side. Yes. Uh, although I recently broke down and got the DVD and watched Parkland. And, you know, Dee Junior's book, Reclaiming Parkland, will tell you all the seedy underside of how that movie came about. And, it it and really is an eye opener. Um, but there's things in it. Even when you try to tell the Warren Commission story, you you come away from it saying, "Oh my God, they did that!" You know, they right. destroyed a letter from Oswald to the FBI. Uh-huh. You know, in the weeks prior to the assassination, and Oswald's mom was going around telling everybody that he was he was a, a government agent, and they ignored uh, that. That's in the movies. Yeah. They, that incriminating stuff against the conspirators is still in the movie because you can't get away from that yeah. if you're dealing with that. And the Warren Commission didn't get away from it either. It's in there. What their trick was, they presented the facts the way they were. And I, I point, if you just want one thing to read, and you can find the entire Warren Commission online now, go to Jack Ruby's testimony and read that. And, you know, they were cajoling Ruby during his testimony. They were saying, uh, they are saying, yeah, you know, whenever he would tell something truthful, he said, yeah, yeah. He said, and he kept saying, take me to Washington, D.C., get me out of Dallas. They're going to kill me here. Get me to Washington, D.C., and I'll tell you all about this. And he, and he went ahead and gave some of the, he tried to entice them with some of the facts that he knew. And facts that we have subsequently supported about the conspiracy. And some things were, uh, uh, you know, he, he got wrong because, he, of course, he didn't know everything. He was embellishing something. He had to embellish some things based on what he did know. But on the other hand, they kept, you know, pushing him in the direction to tell the story they wanted to tell. And it was almost as if, and I think it is as if, beforehand they briefed him and they said, or maybe he even gave him the script and said, Here's the story we want you to tell. We'll let you say anything you want to. But here's the story we want you to tell. If you'll just hit these talking points, we'll let you say whatever else you want to. And if you read his testimony, that's how it plays out. And guess what? You read anybody's testimony, even, you know, even Zapruder's, although Zapruder resisted. I read his, I have an essay about this testimony in my book. Because uh, I had to do with the Zapruder film. And um, I'm sort of smiling right now because uh, I just learned today that at the conference in Dallas, finally, after years and years of waiting, we may actually have the end results of a serious study, a serious technical 
investigation of the existence of computer film finally definitively proving that it was altered. And I've been keeping tabs on the investigation for years, and it was due to be out, it was imminent back in 2015, and I heard the details of it at a conference in 2014 in D.C. Um, and that's how long it's been imminent. But now we're very excited, this news that just surfaced today, um, today being the 28th of October, yeah. 2018. Because, um, because you mention in the book, you talk about the missing frames in the Zapruder film. Exactly. And guess what? Uh, a side part of this investigation, first, they, these are Hollywood film experts that took on this project. And they applied the latest technology to it, and they got definitive proof. They can. They are going to show you. There's a documentary that's going to come out of this. I think they, they will have to. That's part of their appearance. They're going to appear by yeah. Skype at the conference, and I'm sure they are going to say you know, the the documentary is either done or it's imminent. But they're going to present final evidence, the conclusive evidence that they have come to. We've waited years for that. And they're going to show frame by frame what was altered, what was taken out. And then there was a side study done that played off of uh, Millicent Craner's efforts. I think she may have been one of the first to really look for missing actions based on witness statements. Uh, But I, I went forward from what she said and I found other evidence and I used Zapruder's testimony. There's things missing in Zapruder's Warren Commission testimony. Uh, he actually said he, he was looking at still frames. They gave him still frames of certain frames of his own film for the purpose of him saying, yes, that's my film, which they got him to say that he should have stepped back. Afterwards, he, he caught on. And I know, I know this. He was very upset about what they did to him in his testimony uh, because it was... He told his family that, and he told his business partner that, and his business partner at that time was a fellow named Erwin uh, Schwartz. And one of, one of the small world stories that I tell about my involvement in all this is that I uh, ended up uh, marrying Erwin uh, Schwartz's niece, um, and uh, I got to know Erwin Schwartz personally, and I heard his story, and I officially interviewed him. That was one of the things that we... My book was starting to look like 600 pages at one point, and we had to start editing stuff out of it. But we didn't want a 600-page book. Yeah. We wanted more like a 300 to 400-page book, which is what we got. But uh, I, can, uh, I can give you um, links to the... Uh, my my detailed notes on the interview. Okay. Lance Wyman, who's, who's a, who wrote the book um, Bloody Treason, which is one of the great, uh, excellent books on the assassination, he um, he talks about that interview extensively because it was he and I who sat down with Owen Schwartz and got him on audio tape telling his story about um, the shell game that occurred that night. He went with Zapruder to get that film developed that, that night. I can tell you, having watched Parkland now, uh, they get that completely wrong. They right. give a fantasy fictional version. Uh, you know, they, they just got this in their imagination. They didn't even follow the Warren Commission's 
um, version of how the film got processed that night. Um, they just kind of, they, just being generous with them, being being kind to them, I will say that they, they didn't read it all. They just kind of got uh, a 10% comprehension of it and then just made up a fictional version of how that film got processed. But I, in my detailed notes, I'll tell you the actual story of how that film got processed that night. From the guys now who was actually there uh, and ran the projector that whole weekend. Every time that film was viewed that entire weekend in Zapruder's office, Erwin Schwartz ran the projector. And so he saw it. He saw it when it was first shown at Kodak, where they first developed the original camera original. And he talks about what that was and what it looked like. Totally got that wrong in Parkland. Uh, and then, you know, we questioned him about his memory of having seen it dozens of times that weekend. Um, but now we're, we're very excited that uh, maybe November 16th, so, that's the day. So in, so, and this is going to be um, November 16th at, at the... Uh, yeah. The, the traffic itself is Thursday, November 16th through Sunday, uh, November 19th. Okay. In Dallas, um, at the Marriott, I believe it's the Marriott, um, Market Hall section of Dallas, uh, kind of across Simmons Freeway from um, the trademark where, that, where Kennedy spoke. We're about, three, we're about three miles. We've always been close to Dealey Plaza. We try to get close to Dealey Plaza. Yeah. But the uh, reservations are always with that. And now, but we're in another interesting part of town where there are stories all over Dallas uh, that are relevant to this. And for the first time, we're convening in a part of town where, uh, near where Kennedy's speech was supposed to take place. And and literally, Market Hall, where another convention was occurring the week of Kennedy's assassination that Richard Nixon attended. There was a bottling convention. And I talk about that, too, in my book, uh, Nixon's role in all this and how he was there. In fact, he flew out of Love Field hours, just an hour or so before Kennedy's plane landed. And he spoke to the press there as well before he left Dallas. And he had been there most of that week. Um, and I, I, I give the evidence of what he was up to there. And um, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. There's lots of evidence that Nixon was involved. Uh, so now I've given you two names of the deep state, uh, Alan W. Dulles and Richard M. Nixon. I can add um, J. Edgar Hoover, too. Okay. I've decided it... that when, pe- when we talk about the deep state, I've decided that for people to best understand in a very direct and simple way, in the nutshell version, I would say if you had to define the deep state in a single person, uh, as it existed in '63, J. Edgar Hoover. Because he Look was, yeah, because he was, yeah. he was the FBI for yeah. what, like the first fifty years of its in of of its inception. He was the head of the FBI from, I believe, it was like the 1920s to the early 70s, maybe. Do I have my timeline correct with J. Edgar Hoover? 
Um, no. Um, further back, uh, there's a documentary that's been running on PBS recently, uh, The Wall Street Bombing. Okay. Goes back to 1924. Uh, and the, the, um, the atmosphere that led up to that. Um, and, um, Jagger Hoover was working in the Justice Department. He had just started there, as a matter of fact. And he was working his way up through the ranks. And he landed this assignment, um, to, uh, investigate the Wall Street bombing. A bombing that to this day has never been solved. So J. Edgar Hoover got his start with uh, with a crime that we have, there's never been a conviction in that either. Um, but he used the publicity from that that failure <laughs> yeah. fun, to his credit and made his career and and created the FBI and he became an early director of it, if not the first director where he spent his entire life after that by, by blackmail. Oh, man, he knew all the secrets, man. He, yeah, he was part of that whole deep state crowd that knew all the secrets. And, um, and in your book, you outline in detail, not only was he part of the, quote, investigation, unquote, but you also detail how he was part of I know you don't want to use the word cover up but I can't think of a better word for cover up cover up or misdirection as far as the who the what and the where of the JFK assassination do I have that right right I I will forgive your use of it because I know how ingrained it is in all of our minds yeah and like like I did earlier I I still trip up and I I still say uh we need to solve, I've tried to train myself, we train myself to say we need to resolve the Kennedy assassination. Right. And, and, uh, and uh, in terms of cover-up, not cover-up, but um, suppression, uh, propagandizing, weaponizing, I'm trying to use those words. Okay. Because the, you know, they made it obvious. They made it obvious that that it's a lie. They don't care that we know it's a lie, their message to us, and I quote this uh, in in one of the uh, back essay, one of the last essays in the book, where I talk about the, my thinking has how my thinking has evolved. That this this is a Gordian knot, and for those in your audience who are Trekkies, uh, the Gordian knot, the modern version of Gordian knot, uh, was rewritten by Gene Roddenberry mm-hmm. in Star Trek, and they will know it as the Kobayashi Maru <laughs> yeah. simulation that was that's done in Starfleet Academy that Captain Kirk famously as a student at the Academy defeated. And how did he defeat it? The same way Alexander the Great defeated the Guardian Knot. He cut through the red tape and uh, he reprogrammed the, the, the computer uh, to allow him to win the simulation. And Alexander the Great, um, in one version of, of the legend, this impossible to untie knot. And people stood in line because the, the winner would become the new king of Gordia. And uh, the king designed this knot that nobody could untie. And so people stood in line endlessly trying to untie it and couldn't. 
Alexander the Great comes along and takes out his sword and cuts it in one version, and in the other version, he pulls the um, the stock is tied to a to an ox cart stock. He pulls the linchpin out and it unravels, and um, and he becomes the new king of this realm. And of course, uh, in modern times, we uh, we like what Captain Kirk did with the Odyssey movie. So. I think well, science fiction buffs, and you, I know you're into steampunk and diesel punk, and, yeah, which uh, much more so than I am. But I'm going to use you as my my uh, Sherpa in getting more into that. All right. <clears throat> now you did something that I think is incredible and amazing, and it, it is it, it's mentioned in um, the introduction, the little snippet on Amazon. You did a lot of investigation in Kennedy's limo. And I think it's the 54 Dodge Rambler that you had found that was also connected with the conspiracy. Which do you want to talk about first? Not not so much the limo. I'm I'm sure I mentioned many aspects of the limo. Um, but, uh, and, and, and that's a very fruitive area. You know, you can pick any one area. That's one. But my, my whole thing was that I actually stumbled across what I came to understand was um, possibly new evidence in the case, physical evidence, um, which may have been the first actual physical, real physical evidence in the case. And that was a 1959 Rambler station wagon that fit the description of the getaway car seen by multiple witnesses, including uh, Dallas Deputy Sheriff Roger Craig. Saw a man fitting, exactly fitting Oswald's description, uh, respond to a shrill whistle. A car had pulled up to the curb there at the, the grassy knoll and this is 10 minutes after the shots had been fired and the, the police were all around and Roger Craig was across the street from where this happened, examining some bullet marks on the ground and he heard the shrill whistle and he looked up and he saw a guy running down and getting into the car. The driver had whistled and he gets into the car and the car drives off west on down the street. And he reported this to Captain Will Fritz, who was head of homicide division at Dallas Police. And uh, he had, when Craig heard that uh, a suspect had been apprehended, he, he called Fritz in his office and he reported that he would like to come and possibly make an identification because uh, he saw a man leave uh, in this manner. And so I tell the whole story about Roger Craig. Uh, testimony on that, which the Warren Commission, you know, altered, left things out of, mm-hmm. and, and, and we talk, tell that story too. Uh, you know, Roger Craig is a central figure in my entire book because uh, the ballistics essay is basically it resolves the whole issue of the misidentification of the gun as a Mauser, as a German a Mauser, a caliber 7.65. So, uh, the, and that's been, de- that's still to this day, that's debated endlessly. And it's debated endlessly because practically nobody has read that essay because Walter Graff and I 
definitively resolved it. Uh, we tell you what the real story of the Nazar was. And it was, but it was Roger Craig and a couple of other um, deputies and officers who supposedly, well, they wrote depositions to the fact that they had identified it as a Mauser when they were, when they, right after they found it on the sixth floor during the investigation. Roger Craig was there at that point. So he, was, he witnessed the getaway car rambler, and then he went up and was part of finding the gun and um, he gave uh, he told he gave a, a story that he uh, that Officer Weitzman, who was up there with him, uh, identified it as a seven point six five Mauser. And um, Craig, although much years after the fact, he uh, he revealed in a, in a letter he wrote to the guy who wrote my forward, Edgar Tacho, yeah. and corresponding with him in 1971, and um, Craig revealed to him in a letter that um, uh, it was 7.65 Mausers stamped on the barrel, as stamped on the barrel. And nobody had heard that before, you know, after almost 10 years of investigation by private investigators and citizen investigators. Nobody had heard that before, and, and Edgar... Petro, Ed Petro was familiar enough. Ed Petro was at the Garrison uh, trial. He attended the Garrison trial during his spring break. He was a school teacher. And he went and he talked to Garrison. He talked to the judge. He was there and involved and, and got to know him. And so he knew the evidence. And when Roger Craig said this, 7.65, so stamped on the barrel, he knew that that had never surfaced anywhere before. This is new evidence. I'll talk about the significance of all of that as well in the book. Because that's the whole thing. Um, because the, the whole case against Oswald is a gun that w- could not have fired those shots. It's mechanically impossible yeah. to fire those shots in that short amount of time. I guess I've heard many people say the firing pin was actually broken or bent or malfunctioning. The scope was not lined up properly. Uh, And when you take away the man liquor Carcano, there's no case against Oswald. It has to be the man liquor Carcano. And nobody has really been able to explain to me how does a gun magically change from being a German-made Mauser to an Italian-made Carcano? I, I, I don't understand that alchemy. Is yeah, well, now very good observation because you have hit the the crux of the way the evidence was handled, uh, the way the propaganda is done. Um, the way they tricked us, the way this magic trick has worked, except you got it backwards. Mm-hmm. It magically, it was a, it was a man like a Carcano. There's no, there's no evidence. There's no, there's not even a, you know, we got, we got the uh, supposed eyewitness accounts. We talk about that. We, we really delve into that and what that means in terms of, and I'll be hopefully talking about that during my segment in Dallas. Because um, Roger Craig Jr. is going to present at that conference 
they've made mm-hmm. a documentary about his father, and we're going to um, present that. Um, but we're going to we're going to hear uh, Roger Dean Craig Jr. talk about his dad and um, his dad's suicide, which may not have been a suicide, but um, that's being uh, considered. I'm going to tell the facts that we found in my research, and then he'll get these facts. And I, and I want to talk to him personally as well, because there's some things I want to know, some very um, uh, actual physical attributes of Roger Craig that are crucial. I don't, I don't know what your comprehension or memory is of the facts that I gave in the book, but mm-hmm. um, the, the color, Roger Craig identified it as uh, a light green conversation wagon. And that has pervaded um, all of the research that's been done. I found a light pink. Um, well, it was one of the standard model colors of that ramble. was a what's been called a pepto-bismol pink. Um, and, it, and it faded fairly quickly because it was a transient color. As an artist, as a graphic designer, I know you are. Mm-hmm. As an illustrator, you know what transient colors are. And so they used a transient red in this pink, and it faded quickly. And so by, there's a 59 by 63 out in the sun, it would have faded to basically, a lot of people call it a light-colored rambler. A lot of the witnesses call it light-colored. They wouldn't even give it hue. Um, A lot of people said it was light gray, you know, a neutral uh, hue. Uh, Gray, now, you probably know this, too, if you've studied color theory. The, um, the opposite on the color wheel from red is green. And one-third of adult men are colorblind, red-green colorblind, which means they see red as green and green as red. So that's my question to you. anybody who knew Craig in any detail. Uh, it's, it sounds to me that he, if he saw a pinkish, you know, faded pinkish, he might have uh, very easily, I mean, if he had been colored on, you know, would have seen it as a light green. Maybe that's where that came from, and that's what I speculated about in the book. But, um, so, yeah, that, and, and let me just say that, so, you got it back, it, it magically turned into a Mauser that didn't think this. There you go. Uh, I had it backwards. And I, I give you, and I give you the um, the reasons. We we actually we came up with enough evidence to show that there was there, there was damage control, and because of the um, the mistake that they made, they made a mistake early on that would have exposed the conspiracy to Frank Oswald within hours of the shooting. It would have exposed it if they hadn't done this damage control, and so we deal with this evidence as evidence of damage control, and we, we present it as such. And it all fits. You know, you, when you're dealing with evidence, you're looking for explanatory power. Um, you're probably somewhat of a science buff, like I am, being involved in your side interests, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's all, about, it's all about explanatory power when it comes to um, the way we obtain knowledge. Uh, and the highest, like, I have an essay in here also. It's a, it's a review of Jim Fetzer's book, Science, um, Assassination Science. 
my review is called Science Court. And I talk about my interest in science and uh, as an application, um, a hobby. Uh, but I understand science. I know that's the highest um, test of, that we have today and have had for 500 years now of uh, how we obtain knowledge. And um, the, the crux of that epistemology, scientific epistemology, is that uh, it's not explanatory power. You know, the, you get you get the evidence, you test it, you the hypothesis, and the hypothesis that explains it the best is the winner. Now, that could change, because in science, it's always falsifiable. Scientists are never satisfied that they found the ultimate solution. Uh, and they get excited when they find evidence that opposes the best hypothesis out there. That's why they've been trying to disprove relativity since Einstein, and have yet to be able to do it. And even recent discoveries like the Higgs boson, uh, it supports Einstein. So, uh, But they're always trying to disprove something. And that's, the, that's actually the, um, the way I dealt with my research. And you'll see that throughout the book. Mm-hmm. That what I'm trying to do is, you know, I found this Rambler Stationway. It fits the description of the getaway car, and I thought it was cool. I knew it couldn't possibly be that getaway car. Uh, but then after months of walking by this thing on the campus of the University of Texas, I started noticing some very strange things about it. And I started questioning myself, you know, you know, why why does it have this Mexican tourista sticker on the window from nineteen sixty four? Now this was nineteen eighty nine when I found it. And uh and and other I give all the details, just massive detail about the strange things about that car. I finally came down to the conclusion that the, the best explanation that I could come up with, I could never nail it down as the car. And I was I was gonna say when when I said that you have hit the crux of the way the uh, official version of the evidence has been handled is that as you get closer and closer, you think you're getting closer and closer to yes or no, is this is this actual evidence? The closer you get to it, the closer you get to the bullets, they split into multiple bullets, yeah. multiple caliber. The closer you get to this car, it splits into multiple cars. Get this, identical. You know, I, I, I studied the film, and there's actual people who took film 10 minutes before the assassination and through 10 minutes after the assassination. The film shows simultaneously at least two, but possibly three different cars in different, within blocks of the crime scene. Identical 1959 Ramblers of the same year model style, down to the luggage racks, down to the color. That can only mean uh, one three, thing. Possibly three of them. I say possibly three because one of them was in in a position, and based on witnesses, you saw it here, and then saw it there, and then saw it there, it could be the same car. So at, at least two, possibly three identical cars to this car spotted right there at the crime scene at the time of the shooting. And so that got me going, and that's what led to this essay, which was 
my main, my first and main contribution to assassination research. Because only because so, the thing is, is that that's either a very very popular car, and so many people had them, or this is the well, car. I'll tell you what, uh, it was the most uncool car. And I talk about that. I talked to people who knew that car. I talked to the. I found a mechanic right. who had actually worked on it at the dealership where the professor at UT bought it. And so I found out who he bought it from, the owner of the car dealership. I got, amazingly, there was a lot of luck involved here. Yeah. He actually bought the car. The professor died while we were looking into this car. And I, we, some friends of mine and I, I don't know if you know the name Earl Goals, um, the great reporter for the Dallas Times-Herald, was on the ground investigating the assassination at the time. I, he ended up at the Austin American Statesman at the time I was getting into this research. And I started sending him what I was finding out about all this. And it was it was him three months after the professor died. I was pretty much saying, he, we were at a we were on a panel discussion where Earl Golds was on the panel at the journalism school at UT. And afterward, there was a little, you know, get-together reception. And my friends and I were there and we were talking to Earl Gulls, and we were lamenting that, well, you know, he died back December 19th, um, and this was March by now. And uh, But Earl said, oh, now, wait a minute. Don't make assumptions here. Why don't you just go drive by his house, you know, and see if the car's still there? So we thought, okay. And we, uh, we left that reception, and we all piled into the same car. There was like three or four of us. And we drove over to the address, which we'd known for years. And guess what? It's the car. Carroll Park, right? Right in front of the house was the car. The next day, I called up his widow and inquired about the car. And she said, yes, uh, I was interested in I am interested in selling it. And I said, um, could a friend of mine like, come by and maybe test drive it? She said, yes. Yeah. So the next day, we... We go, and we drive the car around the block. And get this, this is the luck. Now, the magazine, I talk about these magazines that were in the back seat. Uh, during, when he was driving it to work every day, there were these magazines in the back seat from 1963. Holy cow. Life, look, Life magazine, Look magazine, Esquire magazine. Couldn't identify all of them, because some of them you can only see the corner of. But there were some I could identify. Some would, the, the cover was half ripped off. You could see the, the title page of the magazine. You could see the volume number and everything. And so I looked, these, I looked up the microfilm on these magazines, and I read the entire magazines. And just amazing stuff that were in those magazines that tied into other amazing stuff. There was a, he had left a trail of breadcrumbs. And so I came down to the conclusion on this call that he created a puzzle at most even if it's not the car, or even if it's not one of the two or three cars that were there, uh, he left some breadcrumbs. And there's very good evidence that that car was one of those two or three. But he left breadcrumbs in a puzzle, a, a Da Vinci Code-style puzzle. He turned this car into a puzzle that only if you knew the story of Roger Craig witnessing this getaway and the other witnesses only if it had that relevance in your mind, would you even notice it? And and then, if it was securely in your mind, you would start noticing the weird things about the car. 
You would notice the backseat magazines. You would notice the Mexican Teresa sticker. You would notice the bumper stickers that were on it. You notice the condition of the car. Lots of these things. And then you try to find out, okay, what's the next step? We have to find out who owns it. You go and you put down your $5 at the BPS, at the License Bureau, Registration Bureau, and you can get the late, the current registration when it's got the name of the current owner and the previous owner. So there I had those two names. Started looking into them, and it just went on and on from there. I tried to disprove that this was the car and could not do it. To this day, if anybody can find any evidence that completely rules this car out as having any involvement in this, I would welcome it, because that's what I've been trying to do. Um, but um, we bought the car from her. We, so we drove it around the block. And while we were driving around the block, I just decided to flip open the glove compartment. And guess what? What? It was a treasure chest. It was a treasure chest. It was packed. Uh, it, it would have almost exploded out on me. It was so packed, tight. Every receipt, every document. The warranty card from the initial sale was even in this stack of documents. So this is the car. He kept, he kept every gas receipt. He kept every every purchase he ever made on that car. Every tire change. Every every gasoline fill up. This had the mileage. Every repair job. It had the mileage of the car on it. I was able to pinpoint where the car was at certain with certain mileage on it. And so I said, like, I quickly closed the glove compartment. And we went back to the house, and we stood out on the front lawn, and we said, uh, well, we like it. Uh, <laughs> how much are you asking? And she said, well, I was hoping to get, um, I was hoping to get, like, my eight, nine hundred dollars, eight hundred, I think she said eight hundred. I said, uh, and we, we paused, we thought about it. And we checked our wallets, and I said, you know what? We have, between us, it was my friend Juan Garcia and myself. And I said, we have $500 on this right now. It's yours if you'll agree to this sale. And she thought about it for 30 seconds. And she said, okay. She just wanted to get it. It was an albatross. Yeah. And believe me, we spent the next, we spent the next, um, when was this? This was 92, March 92, that we bought the car. Um, the next uh, six years that we had it. And I tell the whole story about what happened to the car, what happened to it while right. we had it, and ultimately what happened to it. Um, while we had it, it most certainly was an albatross. I mean, I even, I even became convinced that it was bad luck. Uh, there's still stories to tell about that. I don't tell those stories in the book. But, yeah. Um, it just, yeah, it was an albatross. And I could understand why she wanted to get rid of it. We were glad to have it. We had it for the next six years. And the car... You, and it, I may have a... The car was cursed, sort of. I may cursed, have a surprise. Um, I don't know how... I'm actually not prepared to say this yet, but I may have a surprise for the audience at the... Uh, at the conference, if I can swing this, do you want to? Uh, do you want to come they, back? They will be able to see this car, where it was. If I can, if I can swing getting this uh, this uh, presentation complete. 
That's all I'll say about that. Okay. Go ahead. And absolutely, come back after the conference and 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 tell us what happened. Cause sure. You, yeah, yeah. You have me at the edge See? of my seat now. But I'm telling you. I'm, I'm telling you in your audience. Keep your ears peeled to the media on Friday, uh, November sixteenth. No, so that's uh, that. The the Friday, Friday is the seventeenth. Yeah, the same day I speak. Okay. Thursday the fifteenth. Thursday the sixteenth. Friday. Friday afternoon at about three. Three fifty, I think it is. If you know the schedules fluctuate, but by Friday afternoon, there may be a major story in the media about the Zapruder film. Now, that's how I know this evidence. I know what they're going to present. I've seen it presented in detail already. And I can tell you, uh, it could make headlines. Well, so you know, November 17th. you know what? Here's, here's a great idea. Why don't we just call this part one and I'll put this on, uh, on the server, I'll release this out in the public, and why don't we have you back after the conference for part two of this conversation? I would love to. I would love to. That'll be great. And, um, and in the meantime, you can go to um, CDP Research, CD Center for Depolitical Research dot org, CDP Research dot org, and uh, you can go to our Facebook page, our Twitter page, CDP Research. Um, in all cases, um, to find that. And uh, we'll be reporting all this. Uh, you can, at those sites, at our social media, yeah. and our webpage, you can keep up with what we're reading. Uh, we try to share what we're reading and studying right now, and we try to share any breaking news that we hear. And I tell people, people don't know this, especially people who, who are not students of this yet. Um, but um, there, there is news on the Kennedy assassination every day. Yes, you sir. don't hear yeah. about it. You don't hear about it on purpose. They don't want you to hear about it. But if you're involved in the community that keeps up with it, you hear news on this subject every day. Um, and sometimes it breaks. The last time we had breaking news in the media was when, during the the supposed file releases that was mandated by law that ended up not being released. Yeah. Um, but it was all over the media. It was international. It was an international media story. Yeah. I'm saying based on what I know about what's going to be presented on the 17th of November, um, it may, at least in a small way, it may break into the major media. News. I can't wait. And, we'll be, and so, uh, CDP Research Twitter, CDP Research Facebook, and um, CDPResearch.org. You can keep up with us there, and you can get a lot of background. You can look at you know what we've been up to the last couple of years. We're still in startup mode, uh, and all the struggles that go with that, uh, but we have an infrastructure, and I'm proud of Jeff Worcester, our president, and he's a good interview if you want. Yes, him. I'd love to and, get him on the show. Absolutely. And, they, and one, of, one of our board members is uh, Joe Green, uh, joegreenjfk.com. Yep. It's his excellent site. And he's the publisher of my book. He has a little he has a little press that published my book. That's great. And uh, he's, he's a fantastic interview. 
and we are the guys who founded this think tank and uh, and are growing it. They're uh, all, all welcome the here. Pains that exist. They, the, all and of, of course, them are welcome here. It's anti deep state, so we've got that hurdle, and we may not succeed. But like I said, like Sophie Scholl said in her trial with the White Rose, somebody had to make a start. That's what we're doing. Hey folks, it's Eric just reminding you to go to metaphysicalpodcast.com and click on episode 96 to check out all the reference material that Mr. Bartholomew mentioned in this episode. Also be sure to check out some of our other links, like to our Zazzle page, buy some products to help support the show, and all the other cool stuff that we have. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our show. This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. You can be a part of the Metaphysical Connection by subscribing to the Fedora Chronicles Network on Twitter through at Fedora Chronicle. There you will find jazz era counterculture, vintage threads, lost history, conspiracies, the paranormal, and space news. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups the Metaphysical Connection. Both platforms are great ways to join our growing community, connect with other friends of the show, and find out what's coming up in next week's episode. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes, and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them, yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. 